I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 2, the second half of John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. We're going to read in just a minute. The gospel of John is so, so important, so good, so enlightening to our eyes. There's nothing that we need to see more and to see more rightly than the person of Jesus Christ in this gospel. Friends, if you're here this morning, I pray that God would help you to see and savor Jesus Christ. Not just see him with with like mind's eyes in just a, a human way, but that you would see him truly and worship him, delight in him. Oh God, hear Hear Lee's prayers, our prayers, and give above and beyond all we could ask or think. Help me right now in Jesus' name, amen. If Jesus showed up this morning in person, and he was in this building, and he was walking through the hallways, and he was in the parking lot, and he was incognito so we couldn't recognize him, what would he observe? And how might he respond as he watched you? What would he find preoccupying our hearts because he knows our hearts? What would he see going on in our minds right before the service and right after the service? What would he see going on during the service? Would he find joyful people who are hungry for him to work, crying out to God for him? To work, would he find a distracted and silly or shallow people? Would he find prayer? Would he find love in this room? Would he find judgmental, cold looks? Or would he find gracious invitation to one another? Would he find a bunch of people who are hurting and lonely, sitting by themselves? If he came and observed our singing, if he observed your singing... What would he think? Not that he cares about how good a voice you have, but he knows the heart behind that voice. He knows what's in us. He knows what's in us. What about during this time now, during the sermon and after the sermon, when the benediction is all done and we sang the doxology? Jesus is gracious, patient, kind, and meek, and yet he is passionate about the right kind of worship. The right kind of worship that takes place in this room Sunday after Sunday, and which takes place in your car as a family or with your spouse or by yourself, the kind of worship that takes place in your home And I'm not just saying family devotions, as we might call it. I'm talking about the worship of your life, a response of living to God that is fitting to who He really is. In our sinfulness, 
we all have major worship problems. And Jesus is the only solution to that worship problem that each of us have. And the question for us as we peer into this text this morning is, how are we going to respond to him? So now we're to this passage. We saw two weeks ago that Jesus' first sign, he shows up to a wedding And there's a great calamity. They run out of wine, which would have been a great shame in that culture. And Jesus chooses to make his inaugural sign miracle, showing what his ministry and life would be like and why he came to this earth. And he turns water into wine, water into these purification jars that were used for cleansing of hands and fulfilling the Old Testament law. He, makes, he takes water that were in them and he turns it into wine saying, I have come to this world to bring God's festive joy and I'm going to do it by going to the cross. Now he comes into Jerusalem, I think on his first Passover of his earthly ministry because he's going to do this in other places. You will find if you look in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that he does this entry into Jerusalem and he disturbs the temple. We call it the cleansing of the temple or he clears the temple. He does that in those other books, but he does it at the end of his story, right before he's going to the cross. And I think it's because he did this more than one occasion. He did it at the beginning of his ministry and he does it at the end of his ministry. Would you look with me at John chapter 2 verses 12 through the end of the chapter and follow along as I read. This is what John records. After this, this was after the wedding in Cana. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days Now we move to verse 13 in the clearing of the temple, the cleansing of the temple. And it starts with the time of the cleansing. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Passover is this important ceremony of all Israel, all faithful Israel, especially faithful men would travel to this to pay a certain temple tax. Jesus did. They all would go to this temple. They would come bringing their sacrifices. They would celebrate, if they possibly could, in Jerusalem, this great Passover, a a mark of a deliverance of God as he judged the people of Egypt who had brought the people of Israel into slavery, and God miraculously saved his people, and he said, I am going to destroy all the firstborn in Egypt but I will pass over everyone who kills a spotless lamb and puts the blood over the doorpost of your house and you get all ready, get your bags packed because I'm going to take you out of Egypt. And that night, there's going to be a Passover. I need to get my water bottle. Thank you. A Passover and an angel of death is going to come and destroy every firstborn that does not have blood over the post. You find that God brings a mighty and a glorious deliverance. Now, we are over a thousand years, almost 
many, 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 we are 1,500 years now past this, and Jesus is coming to celebrate this event. And we can't help but have ringing in our ears from the first chapter of John where it says, John the Baptist looks as the messenger and says, disciples, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the Passover of the Jews at hand. Jesus goes to the Jerusalem. Now we have the setting of the cleansing, verse 14. In the temple, this is the temple now being built by Solomon. It's almost done. It is glorious and it's massive. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeon, and the money changers sitting there. What's going on here, this is probably the outer courtyard of the temple. It's where they would come and they, would con- they had, by this time, conducted a lot of business. Because you see, during this time, people would come all from just, they would spend days and days getting to Jerusalem, and they didn't have an opportunity to bring all of their flocks, or they didn't have money, they just had flocks, and they would come and they would sell it so they could pay this temple tax, or they would come with their money and they would buy a sacrifice so that they could offer their sacrifices to the Lord, and they had a business going on. That's nothing wrong with that, to make that happen, provided their motives, and it's happening, though, in the temple, probably the court of the Gentiles, which in other gospels says this was a place for the Gentiles, the non-Jews to come to seek the Lord and for God's people to come to pray. This is the setting for this, this cleansing of the temple. Verse 15. And making a whip of cords... He, that's Jesus, drove them all out of the temple. Who? Those that were the money changers, those that were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. He drove them out all of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins and the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Man, imagine that. I mean, you might think, Jesus, aren't you overreacting? You're causing a scene here. Who are you? You're just starting your ministry. You had just done your first sign at the wedding of Canaan. You come into the, at the Passover time, you come to the temple mount area, you enter into the court of the Gentiles, you see this going on, you make a whip, and you disturb the whole market. So now we find here the purpose of his cleansing in verse 17. Or at least the interpretation, the meaning of this, what was going on behind Jesus And it says here, and his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
And if you have your Bibles, you'll see that there's quotations. If you see on the screen, there's quotation marks. Zeal for your house. This is a quotation from David's psalm in Psalm 69 when David is under attack and he has enemies that are, hate him and want to destroy him without a cause. And he's crying out to God. And the purpose of the opposition that he is facing is he is so passionate about the worship of God the Father. And he so longs that God the Father would be worshipped. And he longs for his name to be upheld in his tabernacle and someday his temple. And he says... Jesus is the greatest David. Jesus is the new David, and he is overwhelmed. And he is willing to be consumed within him for the honor of his father, God's name. Now we, verse 18, we find the, the opposition or objection to this cleansing. Here we find Jesus, the beginning of his ministry. This is the first time he faces literal opposition. We go to John chapter 1. It says, he came to his own. But his own did not receive him. But to those who do receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God who believe in his name. Here we go in verse 18. So the Jews, most likely the leaders or representatives from the leaders, messengers, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us? For doing all these things, causing a ruckus in the court of the Gentiles, coming into the temple here and, and just taking a whip and rounding them up and sending them out and overturning the tables and making this mess. What authority do you have to do this? Now note here, they do not defend themselves. They don't say, Jesus, what are you doing? We have a right to do this. You are violating what is right no, they don't defend themselves. They just say, what right do you have? What, by what authority do you come? Because you seem to be coming into this place, this really important place, this high and prestigious capital of Israel, and you're causing a ruckus. Jesus then foretells us the true cleansing that's going to happen, verse 19. Jesus answered these Jews, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Now, this is the beginning of and I challenge you, read John, keep reading John, and I want you to note this as you read John. Over and over again, Jesus, and he knows what he's doing. He speaks almost like a riddle, and he says things that they totally take in a wrong direction. Jesus is standing in the temple, and they say, what sign do you have to have such authority as you have? Show us that. Give us a miracle from God. You're, if you're really a prophet, if you're the prophet Isaiah, if you're the prophet Elijah, if you're one of these prophets, show us. If you're even the Messiah, show us. And Jesus says, in the temple, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it. Either they think he's insane, he's talking gibberish, 
or he is some fool that is taking a prerogative he has no right to take. And we have a note, verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And all of us are to now be aware as we're reading the gospel of John and goes, Jesus knows right away that he is going to die and that he is going to rise from the dead three days later. Jesus is speaking in a type of cryptic talk to them. He's speaking in a type of riddle to those, in fact, even the disciples who are followers of Jesus by now and believe in his name are become children of God. They don't understand, I don't believe at all, what Jesus is talking about, but they will, because you look at verse 22 now. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture. That's, that's the Old Testament scripture. He believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoke. You say, what scripture of the Old Testament? I'm not sure, but there were many, many foretellings of that God's Messiah, anointed, one from the line of David, would continue on forever, so much so that David gives a prophecy and he says, you will not let your holy one, the anointed one, see corruption even in death. So we now come to verse 23. Now, when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So, I'll just give you a little bit of a forecast. These three verses, in some ways, are a preface to next week's sermon, where Jesus talks to a man and says, Nicodemus, you should know this already, but you'll never even see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. He has people flocking to him because they want to see miracles, and he's doing some now. And they're, doing, they're coming to him not because they truly have had their hearts affected and they want Jesus for who he is. They want Jesus to make their life better. And he no, does not entrust himself to them because he knows what's in man and in their hearts. Now, we could go through a lot and spend a lot of time on this passage. I just want to bring out three points to you this morning to apply to our lives about this great cleansing of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. And it's number one, it's this. You and I, we have a worship problem. Jesus came and came into the temple because there was a worship problem in Israel. God's people were coming. The temple was a special place that God had built first by David's son Solomon. 
and it was destroyed because of their wickedness, and it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and it was destroyed again, and it was being rebuilt by Herod the Great, and it had been built probably 20 years, been started to be built about 20-some years before Jesus was born, and it was under construction, and it was beautiful and glorious, and it was the place in which God's people would come, and they would worship, and they would come, and they would pray unto God, and they would come, and they would offer their sacrifices. The temple was to be the place where God's personal presence would come and dwell, and if you would come not only to worship him, to speak to him, and draw near to him, you would offer sacrifices, and based on whether you were faithful to obedience to him of keeping those sacrifices, he received you, and it was all by his mercy and grace based on his promises, and they would come to this temple Jesus comes into this and he, realize, he, he sees that where this place of right now business occupation of trading and exchanging money and doing all these things, all of which weren't bad in of themselves, but were taking up a place where people were supposed to come and yearn for God and to worship Him, to come and for people who are faithful to cry out to say, Oh God, have mercy on us. Forgive us of our sins. We repent that we have gone too far to idols. He comes and He sees it, just a place of money-making and his heart is grieved, and there is a righteous anger, as it seems, and he takes the whip, and he clears the temple. He cleanses the temple because there was a worship problem. The world has had a worship problem since Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, and the law of Moses never fixed that worship problem. God never intended that it would actually ultimately fix it. It was going to point us to something that would ultimately fix us, and that was Jesus coming. Man's worship is out of joint by nature because of our sin. We do not incline ourselves to God rightly. We actually come week after week, if left to ourselves, without God's intervention in our hearts, we can use God. We might come to worship Him on a Sunday. We might pray for him, to Him throughout the week. We might do all those things, but our worship is problematic if it's not done for the pure desire to love the Father with all our heart through Jesus Christ. We do not naturally come saying, I surrender myself completely. Take me and do with me whatever you want. I just want you. That is not in our nature. And in fact, it is impossible until we are born again. That's next week. Jesus comes in and interrupts this worship problem. You need to notice that all the worship that we will ever do in this world is always in response to God's grace. And what I mean by this, friends, is this, that you do not come to worship God, and I'm not going to ever tell you, friends, you need to worship God so he'll accept you and you can go to heaven when you die. That's not how it works. You never worship God to earn salvation. You worship God in response to his salvation, in response to what he has done for you. Even in this story, we find them gathering for the Passover. And good Jews would know who were being devoted to God rightly. They would go, I am coming here all as a reminder on the Passover 
that though I didn't deserve it, my God made a covenant with me and my people and he gave me the law and he showed me his grace and he delivered my people out of slavery as a picture that he delivers us from all our troubles and that he provided a way for lambs to be sacrificed, goats, for oxen, for all of these sacrifices and that we could be acceptable to God and he would make pledges and promises to us forever. Oh, can you imagine the forgiveness and grace and loving kindness of this God? That is what they should have. And then in response to that, they worshiped. We are to be a worshiping people in response to God's grace, not in order to earn God's grace. If we earn God's grace, it isn't grace. It is what is due us. But that's not how it will ever work with us. We have a worship problem. We see that highlighted in this passage. The worship problem is that we love ourselves over God. We love money more than God. I mean, Jesus is going to come in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and he said, he, in Matthew 5 and in 6 and in 7, and he's going to say, you cannot love and worship God and money at the same time. Oh, Americans, we, like everybody in the history of the world, are so good at worshiping money. Pastor David Livingston shared with us this morning, there are 30 million gods in India, and they worship outrightly these gods and they pray to them and they believe that those gods will bring them something. And oh, we come into this world and we think that money and insurance and security and guns and hobbies and comforts and education and you name it, all of those things will bring us security, satisfaction, help, and real significance. And though we Christians... No, of course that's not really true, because of course God is the only God, Jesus is the only Savior. Our lives betray, and they declare what we really live for, and what gods we really serve. I believe that we have a worship problem, and Jesus is here highlighting that as he enters into the temple There's such a worship problem where we love the created over the creator. We love the things that Jesus made for us and gave us in the world more than what, who he is. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're just not sure, you were made by a divine being who is absolutely perfect. You were made by him to love him and obey him and worship him. But you with us all fell when our first, the first human beings in this world believed the lie that it would be good to be in the place of God and we're, instead of worshiping him and surrendering him. All of our ways and living that doesn't express a love and a trust in God is sin. And that sin will destroy us and others. It leaves us broken and unsatisfied and under the punishment and wrath of God. We have a worship problem, brothers and sisters. The world around us should see Faith Church and all those who are members, all those who are truly in Christ, they should see us differently, understanding and responding that our world, we do not live for, we do not worship our country, though we thank God for our country. 
We don't worship our guns, but we might thank God for freedoms. We don't worship our rights and demand them ultimately, but we yield to Christ. We don't worship our money, but we use our money for good of others. We don't worship our children, but we devote our children to the Lord day after day. We spend our time and our energy covenanted with one another for the Lord's sake so that we could be a light to the world. We have a worship problem because we just don't do that by nature. Second thing I want you to see from this passage is that Jesus is the only solution to our worship problem. Jesus is the only solution. And Jesus, Jesus is... I think this is a fulfillment of what's going on in Malachi 3. Look at the end of the Old Testament with me. Would you turn with me to Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And I want you to see a few characters here, and one of them is John the Baptist, and one of them is Jesus. And I think Jesus is living out what goes on. In this passage in John chapter 2, Malachi chapter 3, in verse 1, it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. First half of that verse, first quarter of that verse is John the Baptist. He's the messenger. He's preparing the way of the Lord. That's John chapter 1. Now to John chapter 2. And the Lord himself you seek will suddenly come to his temple And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He is the coming Messiah, and he has come to clean up worship in Israel. Jesus came to a wedding, and he takes these stone basins that were used for ceremonial cleaning in order to wash their hands as though washing your hands literally could make you clean before God. And he took them and he turned them into a basin that would be for wedding wine as they celebrate as a picture of Jesus comes to bring true joy to God's people. But then he enters in the temple and says, but first, worship needs to be restored. Worship comes and it will be a new order, a new way. I have come to change everything. And as Jesus comes and he runs them out of the temple, we are reminded Jesus is the only solution to our worship problems. Jesus came, and what he does here is remarkable. Just like at the wedding feast when he says, his mother comes and says, Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus says, Mother, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. Literally, interpretation. Mother, what is this? Woman, what does this have to do with me? It's not my time to die yet. He knows that dying is the way in which he's going to provide the great feast for his people. And in this place, he comes in. The Jews accuse him and say, what in the world are you doing? What authority do you have? And Jesus looks at these Jews, these leaders, and he says to them, here's a sign I'll give you. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
And they said, what, 46 years it's been in construction? How could that be? This is ridiculous. What kind of boastful claims? Are you crazy? And Jesus all along, and it meant for, this was recorded so that thousands of years later, we would sit in a room like this and ponder these words and say, with, with what the apostle John writes, he's talking about his own body. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows that the sign of his authority is that Jesus Christ is going to actually make the temple that they're worshiping at obsolete. You will no longer need a temple to worship God anymore. Jesus is that temple. And the way he's going to secure that is he's going to the cross and not only in the temple where there were sacrifices and there was blood offerings where animals were killed in order for our sins to be pardoned, Jesus would go and be that temple who would be destroyed and be the right sacrifice, the Lamb of God who would take away our sins so that we could stand before God Right, righteous, accepted by God, forgiven, and brought into relationship with him and all who else have been in him. Jesus is going to do that, and he says, I'm going to do it. You're going to destroy me. You're going to come, but in reality, he's going to lay down his life for them, and he is going to take up his life and be raised Again, Jesus came and he came and he did all of this in honor to his father. If you note in these verses, he is driving them out and he says, my, this temple, my father's house should not be doing what you're doing. This father's house is for his namesake, for his glory and get them out of here. Oh, I wonder how much this has been, become true in our lives, would we say that a passion, the honor of God's name and his house, his son consumes us? Does it consume us? Is it, is it become a passion in our life? We're going to see next week in John chapter 3, it never will be until there's a life a born again There's a new work that's done. God's doing that, and God did that in the disciples. And he's doing it, and he's done it in our lives. Has he done it in yours? Friends, you cannot worship God in your own name or by approaching him alone. You need a helper. You need an advocate. You need a mediator to God. The temple taught us that. But the temple taught us that we could do all these things, jump through all these hoops, go through all these things, and we were still left wanting. Jesus comes on the scene and he is the true temple. He is the true lamb of God. He is the true way to God. He is the true presence of God come to us. And we do not make our pilgrimages to a land in the Middle East. It's why a disciple, Thomas, can go to India and evangelize India and not say, now, for you to really worship God, you have to head back to the Middle East, to, it, to the land of Palestine in which you worship. No, the temple has come to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
This temple was destroyed and this temple was risen from the dead. And this temple is the true presence of God. That if you would repent of your sins, if you would turn away from them and you would believe on him, he will save you. Oh, would you do that is the message to all people. And that is our calling. Friends, those who are Christians here in this church, that's most of us, we in this world should see in us a devotion like we see in Jesus, a passion for his name, not just for God generically or to some conservative constitutionalism of which I like and I love actually, but that's not our devotion. It is to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the hope of America. And it's not conservative politics. Jesus Christ is the hope of this world, not just a moral reforming. Jesus Christ is our politic. We are Democrats or Republicans, but Christ worshipers. And we are became worshipers because he restored us to worship. Because Jesus came to this earth and died for us. And his body was destroyed by his volunteering it, and he was raised from the dead by his might and power because he is God. Jesus died so that you and I, Faith Church, would become one people worshiping this God, knowing it's all grace, not worshiping this world, not worshiping money, not worshiping our family, loving all those things, Praising God for all those gifts, stewarding those truths, stewarding our country, being good citizens and voters and activists at time. But oh no, knowing that that's not where we worship, we worship the Lord our God and we are called to our neighborhoods and we're called to our, our, our brothers and sisters or our future brothers and sisters in India and Cameroon and to the uttermost parts of the world. The last thing I just want you to see is, the, I guess, how are we going to respond? How will we respond to Jesus? We find two kinds of responses going on, and we're going to trace this as we go through the Gospel of John. We find one side of people that are like the disciples at the end of the story of the wedding in Cana. They saw the sign when Jesus turned the water into wine and he manifested his glory. He really is the son of God. And it says the disciples believed. believed. And what do they do? They, they follow him. They receive him. They abandon their old way and they follow him. Now we come to the story and the disciples are, we're hearing about their believing. It says that they, they remembered that Jesus said this they remembered they said that, and when he was raised from the dead, they said, that's what he was talking about. I believe he really is the Son of God. I know I believed then, but now I really believe. And we now have the advantage that the disciples didn't have. We can see for 2,000 years, we can see these stories from, a, from above and see all of them and read them and put them together, the Old and the New Testament, and rejoice and when the Holy Spirit works on our heart, like he has in so many of you, changes everything for us, and we've received him. And oh, it is always our cry that there would be some in this room who have thought that they've received him, but haven't, would come to him today, 
would receive him. But we find at the very end of the story, and this is a segue to next week, we find in the story where Jesus continues to do more signs. Verse 23. And many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. It says they believed on him. But it says in verse 24 that Jesus didn't believe on them. It's almost the same word in Greek. But Jesus on his part didn't, that word in trust is actually, he didn't believe on him, he didn't believe himself to them. Because he knew all people, he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And as we're reading the gospel of John, because this is, this is meant for us to kind of just keep getting the whole picture of this whole gospel of John, John is going to show us there are people that believe but don't really believe. You've been there before. You know people that would say, I believe, but they don't believe. If they believed, they would follow Christ. If they believed, they would worship him. If they believed, they would live differently. They would have different values. You, your values reveal what you're really believing in. Your, what you treasure shows what you really believe in. And, and here, they, the, the sign here or the, the clue is when they saw the signs that he was doing and we're going to see other things like in John, Mark's, I'm sorry, John chapter 6. They just wanted their bellies filled. They wanted to see the miracles. They wanted God to answer their prayers. They wanted to do all these things. They didn't truly yet believe. They didn't say, Jesus, take all those things to the side. I need you. You are my eternal life and my light. Friends, to come to Christ this is a reminder to all who are believers and to those who are not believers. To come to Christ is not for you to come and say, Jesus, I ask that you'd come in with all your signs and wonders and strength and your answers to prayer and you're giving me an inner peace. I want you to come into my life and I want you to fill it up and make it better. Fix my marriage and my finances and my parenting or my depression. That's, that's not what it means to come to Jesus. Oh, does Jesus work on all of those things at all of those levels? He absolutely does. But to come to Jesus is to say, I have been looking for the wrong, I've been looking for things all my life, and I've been looking in all the wrong directions. You and you alone. Not what you give me, but you yourself. I want you. I see you who you really are. You are the Son of God. You are life. You are light. You are the maker of my soul. I was meant to find my rest, not from you ultimately, but in you. And oh, that God would ring that true even more so. May that be the source of our songs and our living and our evangelism in our giving and in our praying and our hoping. Christ is our hope. He is our life. He is our everything. Let's pray. Father. I invite, I plead that you would work in the saints of faith church, the Christians, to truly worship you. You made a lot of us very wealthy from worlds, compared to India, we're so wealthy. Compared to Cameroon, we're just filthy rich, all of us, even those that barely make it. We just have so many nice things. We have so many high standards, and God, even though it is, it's hard for us, 
it's hard for us to put our trust in you because we have our trust in those things. Oh God, would you restore our worship? Help us to surrender to you. Oh God, come and minister to us. And if God, I, I got to believe that you have allowed for there to be people in this room that have not yet received Christ. I pray that it would be today or very soon that they would respond and say, I need to be a Christian. I surrender my life to Christ. He is everything. In Jesus' name, amen.